Hello and welcome to Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller, and I'm very pleased to say that my guest on this week's programme is author and publisher Simon Winder. By day, Simon is history editor at Penguin Press, but he also moonlights as an author. A couple of years ago, he published The Man Who Saved Britain, subtitled A Personal Journey into the Disturbing World of James Bond. That book was praised by the TLS for its eccentric brilliance, and the same quality shines through in his new book, Germania, which is also a personal journey into another world which is not without its disturbing aspects, that of German history. It's a great testament to Simon's skill that he makes this daunting subject so accessible, and often downright entertaining. I find myself sitting in a cafe laughing aloud at passages in the book, and I can't remember the last work of German historiography that did that. Simon's enthusiasm is of the non-coercive, infectious kind that makes you want to sample some of the delights Germany has to offer for yourself. The quirky museums he visits, the quaint, tiny former states, and yes, even the pork dishes. When we met, I asked him where the idea for the book came from. And I guess the idea for this book goes back a long way uh, to how I used to go to the Frankfurt Book Fair every year, and when I was there, I'd always stay on for a day or two to go and visit some local town. And I remember once going to uh, Darmstadt, which is about an hour away from Frankfurt, for the um, wholly discreditable reason that there was a Weller hair care museum there, which struck me as being such a hilarious thing to visit, that um, I just went there just to be able to say I'd been to it. And then was horrified to find that actually even Darmstadt, which is a neither here nor there sort of town in many ways, was I found was totally fascinating. And I kind of felt that I needed to justify to various friends who each year would say, where have you gone this year? Ha ha. Uh, and I'd say, oh, I went to uh, Mainz or Marburg or Würzburg. And uh, I, in the end, I just had to justify all these trips by writing a book about it. Do you think there's something in your own temperament that means Germany particularly appeals or aspects of Germany particularly appeal to you? Self-critically, I'd have to say that I do sulk doing things which everyone else is doing. So, like, for example, while objectively, of course, Italy is really nice, I don't find it particularly enjoyable going there because I feel I'm part of some kind of immense herd of people going down there. And that places like Florence or Siena are more or less worn flat by so many thousands and thousands of people looking at them. And it was easy to notice that uh, if you went to somewhere as important as Siena in many ways, like Nuremberg, you could see it with fresh eyes because... You know, coming into Nuremberg Station, I suddenly realised when I first went there that um, I didn't even know what Nuremberg looks like, and yet everyone knows what, say, Florence looks like. And yet Nuremberg is at the absolute heart of like the European Renaissance with unbelievably important discoveries in terms of map-making and gold-making, and like, Dürer was there, and oh, there was all kinds of amazing forms of armour and weapons made in Nuremberg. And, you know, and it's, it's one of the key renaissance places and yet it's for very obvious reasons to do with the 20th century a blank and yet it is still there and it's still valid as a great renaissance center right in the first page of the book you describe germany as a bit of a dead zone as far as anglo-saxons are concerned we know astonishingly little about it beyond the the facts of the second world war Yes, I mean, I, I, I mean, there are very, very good reasons people don't go to Germany, of course, to do with uh, the First and Second World Wars. And I suppose while as a, I work as a history publisher as well as a writer, and much of my publishing career has really been based around 
editing books on the Germany in the 20th century and the catastrophe of that period. And it struck me as being one of the things that I was always constantly reminded of is the way that, for example, Hitler particularly was obsessed with German history. And many of his actions don't even make sense in relation to German history. And as one famous example is you know, shortly before he shot himself in the bunker, the news came through that Roosevelt had died. And he and Goebbels immediately made the link with Frederick the Great and the fact that the Empress Elizabeth, the Tsar, who was Tsarina of Russia at the time, and Frederick the Great's great enemy died just at the point when Prussia was at uh, Russia's mercy. And both of them immediately thought, aha, you know, so the Tsarina Elizabeth absurdly was like Roosevelt and suddenly everyone would be magically saved and the Russians and the Americans would turn on each other. And so this kind of obsession with history and the distortion of history, this strike me as being something that would be really interesting to write about because of course, before Hitler came along, Germany had a perfectly good and interesting history, which was no better or worse than anyone else's. And yet it's clearly an abused history. So Nuremberg before the 1930s was an archetypal, sleepy, pretty old German town. And then of course it became the place of Nuremberg laws and trials and, and, and rallies. And so I wanted to kind of scrape off the, the, the horrible things of Nuremberg and try and reimagine it before then. And in effect, take, not to take Hitler at his word, you know, that these histories that he poisoned and distorted were there before and they were accessible and that they should be accessible again today. But given all you've said, it takes a bold man to tackle the broad sweep of German history and to tackle it with the, the wit and the, sometimes the levity that you do in the book. Well, I mean, it is a lightly written book, it's probably fair to say. I like to think I know a lot about it, but it's selective and half-remembered and I have to keep looking things up. But I did kind of think that the only book, either the, essentially the book is a rough sketch for a book which was probably meant to be five or 6,000 pages long and therefore completely impossible to either read or write. And therefore it's a series of brief sort of scherzos on different aspects of, say, the Germans in the Roman Empire or the great emperors of the early Middle Ages or uh, Frederick the Great or so on. You know, each section is very short, partly reflecting the wish to have a book of a reasonable length, but also probably quite accurately reflecting my own rather short attention span. And it's it's very much a book that doesn't smack of having been written in the British Library. It smacks of you actually being on the ground and tramping around small towns and going to dusty museums and provincial backwaters. So what's, what's the appeal of, of that approach? Well, I think I was writing with no particular authority. So I did kind of think the only way of making a book which would be palatable or entertaining would be if I was in it. And so the reason you'd be reading it was would be to share my own slightly infantile excitement with all the things I found. And I guess what was fun was the way that, and I do find these places exciting, and if it's possible to convey at all just what people are missing out in these places, and the way that unlike these particularly, say, famous Italian locations, which uh, during the summer months are a kind of zoo and impossible to enjoy, and all you're doing is being ripped off left, right and centre and herded in great coach groups through what are meant to be or were great sites, it's possible to visit astounding galleries with the most unbelievably good paintings uh, or the most extraordinary museums or the most astounding churches without any of that pressure. And uh, given that we all eat pasta at home anyway, the last real reason for visiting Italy has disappeared as well. You know, that it's not, you know, you certainly, certainly can't get German food at home. Well, that's maybe a, a cue for me to ask you about German food because you, um, it, it exerts a, an appeal on you that, um, I mean, most Anglo-Saxons are, are very dismissive, perhaps from, not from a very strong, secure home vantage point, but, but you, you do like many aspects of German food. 
Yes, I mean, you can't exaggerate it too much. I mean, the some of the German food is obviously ghastly. I remember being in this really nice little bratwurst restaurant where the alternatives were bratwurst or roasted knuckle. And there were a couple of women having a glass of wine and sharing a knuckle next to me. And I kind of thought, this isn't, this isn't going to export all the enthusiasm for stomach treated in various ways. Again, uh, whether, you know, fried or grilled is not something I'd ever recommend particularly. But there's definitely aspects of German food which are no worse than British food. And I always feel that the British are always happy to reach for German food as something to make fun of when um, they have very little to defend themselves. I mean, what's nice, I'd have thought, going to Germany and having a plate of ham and potatoes and realising it's just as inedible as the ham and potatoes we get at home. <laughs> Tell me about the appeal exerted on you by these little states, these little princelings, these little fiefdoms that grew up. All, all around um, the country that became Germany, because a lot of the book is, is talking about their, their characters and their, their intermarriages or their conflicts. I think uh, the real reason why Germany is so fascinating is this split. Yeah, that essentially, England has probably been more or less a unified place for a thousand years. And you can talk about Kent, for example, as being an interesting place, but it doesn't have a separate political life of any value. Whereas the oddity in Germany is the way that the hundreds and hundreds of different states in the area of what is now Germany, and that hundreds of those survived until Napoleon arrived and swept up lots of them. But even then, various small states managed to survive within Germany until the end of the First World War. And because each of these places had its own dignity to keep up, it means that you can take a train trip down a perfectly average sort of valley, and every you know 10 miles you'll be entering another old state. And places which would be totally banal in Britain are absolutely fascinating because the Duke or the Margrave or the Prince or whatever of these particular places had to have a really beautiful church, they had to have a palace, they had to have a barracks, they had to have a main town square, they tended to in, in, endow libraries and galleries. And all these things are still there. And so uh, small towns of a kind which in Britain you would drive straight through um, repay endless visits. And they're all different because in effect they all vied with each other. And at different points they became themselves very, very important. So the history of uh, you know, a state like Saxe-Weimar, you know, unbelievably unimportant place. And I think the the Duke of Saxe-Weimar, who Goethe worked for for many years, I think he, he had a cavalry uh, he had I think, 80 cavalry officers or something like that. It was just ti- the tiny little place. And yet in Western civilization, something like Weimar is unbelievably important um, as, the home of, uh, as the home of Goethe during one of some of his greatest years. Or the tiny place called Curtin, which simply had a Protest- Protestant music-loving ruler for a small period of time who died very young. But before he died, he employed Bach. And because he was a Calvinist, he didn't want any church music. He just wanted some nice music to listen to. And so Bach therefore wrote things like the Well-Tempered Clavier and the Brandenburg Concertos and more or less invented uh, secular classical music and the great repertoire just through the accident of this one little, one tiny, tiny place. And you can still visit the schloss where Bach lived uh, and where he wrote these pieces of music and the chapel and so on. And it's very, very extraordinary. So in a way, you're kind of juxtaposing or counterbalancing the history of the big cities like Berlin and Munich, which we might be familiar with from political history, with these rather sleepier, smaller, more benign, I suppose, histories. Yes, I mean, Germans themselves are very obsessed with this, you know, that that, that I think it was Norman Stone, I think, said once how uh, in 1945, it was the victory of the prince bishops, the, the, the big town, the, the power, the power hungry element in Germany. 
the, the Kaiser Wilhelm, the Hindenburg, the Hitler, had been so fanta- totally discredited in 1945 that the big, the big city, Berlin-based, you know, mustachioed kind of future vanished to be replaced by this parallel Germany uh, of being left alone, of a slightly daft localism. I suppose what, one of the things that is so fascinating about Germany is the way that you have all this stuff which is so unsuccessful. You know, you have these great cities like Dresden, which are a hymn to unsuccessfulness. I mean, Dresden is the capital of Saxony for centuries and centuries, and Saxony was an independent state uh, of considerable value. You know, it was very much like, say, Scotland. And yet, at every turn, it, its, its rulers were incredibly incompetent. And at every turn, they sort of uh, misplayed their hand and were invaded or defeated in various ways and eventually were extinguished at the end of the First World War. And yet, the what Dresden still stands for is the whole city is a hymn to failure uh, of the most attractive kind because when other more humorless states like Prussia, which have been eradicated um, now, um, were spending all their money on soldiers, uh, uh, the rulers of Saxony were spending all their money on little ornamental figurines uh, and, and funny palaces of various kinds where they could have like you know, water concerts and things like that. And they might have been disposed of, but Dresden remains uh, a kind of hymn to German harmlessness. And by contrast, you write about Munich as being the city more than Berlin, which was a sort of laboratory for the experiment that destroyed Europe, I think is how you put it. Yes, I mean, Munich I find a very difficult place because it is so attractive and it's so enjoyable. And yet it has to be said that Munich does lie at the heart of, of Hitler's Germany. And it is quite a creepy place for me. I and mean, I think many people really like it, but I mean, I do find it very difficult to shake off uh, the Hitler associations and that horrible feeling that the way you can go, you can walk the route of his march through the centre of town and so on, and the way that all these sort of sacred sites uh, in Munich, and the degree to which Hitler played on a particular Bavarian bitterness about losing out to Prussia, that there was something peculiarly Bavarian about uh, so much of Hitler's project even though, of course, it was a disaster for Germany as a whole and not just for Munich. So let me let me just ask you, finally, a lot of people from this country who visit Germany are there on business, so they're going to Frankfurt or Berlin or Munich. So tell me somewhere that you would recommend as a side trip for someone who perhaps finds themselves in one of those cities where you can sort of see a different view of Germany that you'd recommend. Well, I mean, so many people visit Frankfurt, um, particularly um, that, I mean, there are dozens of towns near Frankfurt, which are well worth at least a day. I mean, one of my absolute favourites would have to be Bamberg, which is this marvellous Franconian town, which is probably only about an hour and a half on the train from Frankfurt. Uh, And there's this miniature version of Prague. It's set on seven hills, with each hill having this sensational church or palace on it. And it has all kinds of virtues, like not only a great cathedral and a fantastic bishop's palace with its own very peculiar history, but all kinds of oddities, like there's a marvellous natural history museum, tiny natural history museum built in the early 19th century by the last of its independent rulers as a sort of belated attempt to educate his uh, subjects, which uh, still has all its original fittings. So it's filled with these beautiful sort of neoclassical sort of white, white paint and glass pyramids filled with robin's eggs and wax fruit and a whale jaw and things. And it's just the most magical enlightenment kind of room. And it has, and the town, I think, has the highest consumption of beer per head anywhere in the world, which is also another virtue. It has this amazing stuff called Rauch beer. This is um, sort of smoked hops and these unbelievably convivial pubs where it's mm. so you can get your culture in during the day and then get completely trolled in the evenings. Wash, wash down your knuckle. Absolutely. Simon Winder. Germania. A Personal History of Germans, Ancient and Modern, is out now. 
That's all for this episode of Podularity, but there's an extensive audio archive to explore on the website at podularity.com or on iTunes. Just type Podularity into the search box. Subscribing to the podcast is free, quick and easy. All that remains now is to thank you for listening and say until next time, goodbye.